Hello and welcome. I'm Neilan Patel. For today's episode, I'm talking to Arlen Hamilton, the founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital. That's a venture capital firm that focuses on funding startups by people of color, women, and the LGBTQ community. They've done about 160 deals so far with investments in everything from online beauty retailers to satellite internet companies. Backstage is opening a new fund that literally anyone can invest in to allow more regular people access to VC-style investing as part of their portfolios. This is one of the first funds of this kind under a new Securities and Exchange Commission rule called Reg CF, or Regulation Crowdfunding. I talked to Arlen about that and about the explosion of regular people investing using tools like Robinhood. It's a big trend, and there's a lot to unpack there. And, of course, we talked about the day-to-day decisions she makes as a VC and where she thinks the opportunities in tech really lie. Pay particular attention to Arlen's answer about competing with the tech giants. She told me she doesn't worry about them at all, which is a perspective I hadn't heard as clearly before, and I've been thinking about her answer ever since. Okay, Arlen Hamilton, founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital. Here we go. Arlen Hamilton, you're the founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. I have been wanting to talk to you for a long time. I feel like you've made a lot of waves in the venture world. Finally had this excuse to come and talk to investors like you about the business side of tech that obviously drives so many of the outcomes that we see on the consumer side. But let's start at just the start. So Backstage is a VC fund. You're focused on underrepresented founders. It it just seems like there's an endless reckoning in tech about representation. The situation at Google AI with Tim Nickabru just happened, where the most prominent black researcher in tech, uh, in AI tech, was let go by Google because it seems like her research was against Google's business. There's just like a lot of that happening. Let's just pull it back because I, I think that stuff is interesting to talk about. And I want to talk about the business as a whole of tech. How did you end up as a VC? Because that backstory, I think, informs a lot of what happens next. Yeah, I... I never thought I would become a venture capitalist. I didn't, I don't think I knew what one was 10 years ago, but around then is when I started learning more and more about the tech ecosystem and about investors, really through people like Ellen DeGeneres and Justin Bieber and Ashton Kutcher and Troy Carter, who were all these celebrities or their management making these small investments in a place called Silicon Valley about a decade ago. And I was in Texas. I had been, I had worked my way up on the production side of live concerts and tours. And that had been like a lifelong dream. And so I was paying some attention to some of these players and, uh, but always, always curious uh, about what's going on. What's, what's the latest. And so I, I noticed that I've seen an interview or two where they mentioned it and, and saw some stickers on Ashton's, uh, uh, laptop, you know, <laughs> and I'm and, and I was just like, why? I was just so curious as to why those people who I thought had really exciting lives would be interested in something like a, a three person team out of a garage. And then I started to put the pieces together to understand that those three person garage teams, just like garage bands, could go on to become something much bigger and, and have a broader impact in the world. And so I just became semi-obsessed with the world of startups. The original idea was that I was going to start my own company and I wanted to just research everything I could so that I could be prepared to talk to investors and other stakeholders and, and, and customers and, and just be prepared like I, I like to be. And it was in that research and 20, what would it have been, 2011 or so that I first came across these statistics that 90% plus of venture funding and, and angel funding goes to white men and in, in, in like six cities in the country. And it was, I, I was just blown away by it because white men make up one third or so of the country. And that's just when you're talking about someone's profile, not to mention their location. So almost immediately it became clear to me that I could probably hack my way into finding, you know, the funding to start a tech company and, and probably be successful there but it would be a very lonely road and it would not be uh, fulfilling because so many others were going to be left out. So I, I changed my, my course and then it started drawing me more and more towards what I consider my calling. So I ask everybody for their decision-making frameworks when we come onto the show. You make a very 
specific and particular kind of decision as an investor. You're just saying this is worth some money. Your idea and your company is worth some money and I'm going to give it to you. And maybe I'll give you some help along the way. And then you're going to come back and give me some more money. I mean, that's the, the fundamental that's, that's of that transaction. The gist of it, yeah. That's a very particular kind of decision. How do you, and given what you have just said about the structure of the industry, how do you make decisions? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot has happened in between those two points, right? So I think people still believe that that I'm still looking at just looking at someone's profile. And, and you know, if you're a black founder, you walk through the door, I write check for you, I write a check for you. <laughs> um, but I'm looking at a few different things. It, it, it is essentially, though, going back to the roots of everything, which is what are these founders working on? What is the potential of this company? The, the main my main job is to make money for myself, my team and our investors. That is my job. And I believe that I will fulfill that and and be able to do that by looking at companies the way that I look at them in my own kind of special way, which is like, who are these founders? What brought them here? What have they been able to do thus far with the limited resources they most likely have at this point? We see things so early. What is the potential of that company if it were to do well? You know, I think about people like Sam Altman at Y Combinator, who his question is like, what if it doesn't work? His question is, what if it does work? What if mm-hmm. this does work? What sort of impact does that have and in, in, in both social impact and, and financial impact? So what has changed over the years since I launched in officially in 2015 is that I've seen almost 10,000 companies now, and I've invested in, um, along with my team, 160 plus companies, and I've turned 40. And so now I'm looking at things from the lens of what would take me a decade or more to do myself, to have some chance of doing myself. And if it would take me less than a decade to do, I'm probably not going to be as interested in it. But if it would take me more than a decade, that means that if I invest in you, I get to live longer. I get to live like deeper, you know, I, fuller yeah. and vicariously through you. And to me, that's really become part of the lens and, and, the, and, the, and the landscape of what we do. We're talking on the day after I turned 40. And now I think I have to really rethink. Well, I'm happy belated. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to have to emotionally process turning 40 for a long time. I love while. getting older. I love yeah. it. And it's just like we're here. We're here. <laughs> We're here. It's so great. Inside of that decision-making framework you're talking about, which is, okay, you've, you control some capital. You're going to give it to a team. They're going to succeed on a project that has a long time frame, and that will make your life richer. Inside of that decision-making framework, there's like a million sub-decisions, I assume. Of course, yeah. How do you approach those? Well, first of all, just an understanding that most of venture is, I mean, it's risky. It's a highly, highly risky asset class and most companies fail, quote unquote, fail. I don't know if I love that word, but most companies are not going to make it. You can guess and you can hope and you can do, you can add on to what they're working on with how we work with companies, but going into it, knowing that and looking at, you know, it goes back to what have they been able to accomplish? Maybe they didn't have a lot of money and maybe they they don't have a lot of revenue yet, but do they have thousands of people on a waiting list just waiting to, you know, knocking on the door, waiting for this product to be made? And if if only for the hundred thousand dollars that we hand them, is that possible for it to 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 come to light? Uh, do they do they have some really interesting backgrounds? And again, it doesn't have to be what fancy school you went to or what big name uh, company you worked at. But do you have something that feeds into and speaks to the founder product fit in a special way? Other investors have used phrases like, you know, do you have a moat or do you have an unfair advantage? Those types of things. And it's, it's in that same vein. It's what makes your profile, your story, your the appetite for this particular company special and unique and different. What about that tells me that you're going to wake up every single day and be like I am. So it's pattern matching, right? That you're going to be like I am and, and, and fighting for this every single day through what will be mostly very tough days. So that's who you give the money to, the founders and the companies. Where does your money come from? Well, our money comes from investors. They're called limited partners or LPs. Historically, and in most uh, funds, they have come from high net worth individuals, family offices, 
endowments, pension funds, uh, depending on the, you know, the, the, the larger and larger the funds get. Historically, our money has come from angel investors who ha- who are accredited, independently wealthy, et cetera, including Mark Cuban, who has in the past put in half of, of our assets under management. And he rarely does that. He doesn't like to invest in other people's funds because he has so much fun investing directly. Mark, Mark was the first guest ever on this show. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, he is very clear that he has fun. <laughs> he has a lot of fun and he won't do it if he's not having fun. I don't think he yeah. likes to to mess around, you know, like he mm-hmm. just, it's like he takes fun very seriously. That's a great description. Yeah. And and so that's how it's been in the, in the past. But as of today, that has changed. So that's, you have some news. This is me trying to, <laughs> trying to lead you into it. You're going to break some news today. What's the news? Yes, we have some incredible news. We are today, as of today, Anyone can invest in Backstage Capital and have a stake in the umbrella company uh, of Backstage, which means you have the same access as an investor that I have. When we have upside, you have upside. And for the first time, we're able to offer this to anyone, even those who are not considered accredited under the SEC regulations and those who are not in the United States. And so it is truly... I can't, there are certain ways, certain phrases I can't say, you know, mm-hmm. I can dance around, but I have been saying, this is just my opinion, is it's almost like having an IPO for backstage. It is as close as you can get, I think, without the, the real thing happening. Someone can invest for as little as $100 and have a piece of backstage. So what it really means is we've invested in 160 companies to date. We will invest in in several more over the next few years when those companies have some sort of exit or liquidity event, meaning they they sell to another company or they IPO themselves or we decide we're you know, they've they've grown so much. We're going to cash out that money goes back into the pot of the original dollars. And once we make all that original money back, we start making profit off of that. And that's where venture capitalists make their real money. And before we did this, we partnered with Republic and and made this something public. All of that profit was just going to a few people, meaning myself and my team, uh, the partners at Backstage and and a few other, you know, select rich investors. Now that is going that windfall kind of comes back to the crowd anyone who mm-hmm. signs up for as little as 100. And, and and it's been so exciting to partner with Republic on it because we share so many of the same aligned values and and, and mission and, and vision of what the future looks like. So one of the problems with venture capital historically, and there, I don't know if you saw, there's a really great New York Magazine article with a headline like, America does have a planned economy, it's just planned by VCs. One of the historic problems with venture capital is, yep, it's a small group of VCs. They're going to flood the market with money. They do have some big institutional investors, but it's not very democratic, right? It's it's not open. This seems like a push towards being open, but I'm still curious about the mechanics of it. So I give you a hundred bucks. Yeah. When do I see a hundred and one dollars pack? Well, this is all speculative, but we might raise a sixty million dollar fund in 2022, and then a two hundred million dollar fund in 2025, or something like that. And we also have SPVs, which are special purpose vehicles where we invest one company at a time. So over the next decade or so, let's say we have half a billion dollars under management and we return. And this is all, again, speculative because so much of it is regulated of how I can talk about this. But let's say over a decade, we 2x that amount for our original LP investors or limited partners. Well, the way our structure is, we would see profit off of that after we put back the 500 million, we would see profit off of that second 500 million because we 2X, right? So we would see 100, 150 million in profit off of that. Well, we're now sharing that. What happens is, is that, like I said before, it's a very uh, risky asset class and it's also very illiquid. So for several years, you may not see anything except your own money coming back, Right. You may not see any much of anything, but then over time, as these companies exit and we, we get that windfall from them or that waterfall, sorry, waterfall from them, then you'll start to see the 101 and the 105. And it could it could go up quite substantially, but I don't know if I can say you know much more beyond that, but that, that's yeah. the point. So as a company in our portfolio, and we have so many companies in our portfolio who are 
you know, we might have put 25,000 in them in 2017, but now they're raising, you know, 20 million or 30 million dollars and we own X amount of, of their company or their equity. And then they go on, let's say they go on in a couple of years to sell for half a, half a billion dollars. Well, because we were in so early, uh, we own a lot more than we than you would think we own. So there's a lot of information on the, the campaign page that goes in, in depth here. I encourage everyone to read it very carefully. If you can have someone else looking at it, you know, a financial advisor, someone legal advisor, but we try to make it very clear on the site that it's a speculative, long play, illiquid play, risky play. But if it does well, it, it pays out. We, we pay out in dividends yearly. And so it's something that you want to hold most likely, but you'll see uh, dividends on a yearly basis. One thing that I think is interesting about sort of younger culture, even like teenager culture right now, is the rise of apps like Robin Hood. For some reason, every now and again, I'm, I fall into a TikTok hole of kids investing in Tesla. Like it, it seems <laughs> like there's, it's wild. Like once you fall down that hole, it's crazy. It seems like there's a rising class of people who are way more interested in investing in making money work for them in alternative ways other than just spending it on fancy cars, which is what I would do. How do you, how do you think this plays into that moment into the sort of the, the culture that's being shaped by Robin hood by people wanting to be more investors? I love that question. I mean, I think it's, it's going to go in, in a couple of directions. Like when I think about it, I got so excited because I instantly thought of two people. I thought of my mother who is 71 and I thought of my brother, who is a few years younger than I am and has has children who are teenagers. And I thought about the fact that my mother's first official investment in a company was on Republic um, before we even knew we were going to be partnering with them for one of the companies in our portfolio who was raising uh, publicly. And she put $500 into a deal after we went over it and she thought about it and, you know, had a lot of time to think about it. And now she ha has a piece of a company and, and at 71 has started a portfolio. And I just think that's so cool, you know, because she does public things, public markets, but this is something she can, she can see their updates and she can, she knows who's behind it and she can wield her money to have the sort of impact she wants to have. And then on the, the younger side, I've been around so many now wealthy families where people who are like 16 to 30 are the ones who are steering that capital towards sustainability and towards social impact and really, you know, not only divesting their family's capital, but really pointing it in a very a distinct direction. And I, so I think this is, this kind of speaks to the people who like to ha like diversify their assets in general, just as it's one more thing you can have on your, on your, in your portfolio at a relatively small amount, depending on what you want to put in. It's also something that you know is going to impact because we invest in underrepresented, underestimated founders. And our portfolio is, uh, I, I say it's the most diverse portfolio in all of venture. And, you know, people can come at me and, and challenge that, but I, I still haven't seen a more diverse portfolio. And then it's also the things that, you know, the companies are working on themselves. They're working on sustainability, climate change, very distinct health products, fintech products to, to democratize so many other industries. And I also think it's just fun. You know, when I put mm -hmm. in $1,000 or $100 or whatever into, into a stock, I want to see how it does. And, you, you know, you should, you should never put all of your money into one thing. You know, you should diversify that. And that's why I say it's so important. But I think it plays into like the gamification of things, and to like, you know, maybe I'll only buy two pairs of those new shoes instead of three, <laughs> you know, exactly what you're saying. It's, I think you have a very conscious, by and large, a very conscious demographic coming up. And I feel, I personally feel really, I'm going to knock wood just in case, but I feel very confident in growing old because of the young people I hear and see who I think are just amazing, you know, who are just so, they're so thoughtful these days, by and large. Let me put some edge on that. I feel like the other thing that's happening next to Robin Hood is a bunch of young people are like, I'm putting all my money in Bitcoin. Yep. Yep. And that is a different class of investment and there's good reasons for doing it and there's good reasons for not doing it. But it does feel like Bitcoin and crypto in general 
has this promise of endless return. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's some risk in it. And I think people understand the risk. It's obviously very volatile. But overall, they feel like it's not risky. Because yeah. if you spent $100 in Bitcoin in, in 2015, you'd be a millionaire, right? Like, And so how do you, when you've got a class of new investors who are interested in things like VC, who see the big exits that you're talking about of companies that are trying to change the world, mm-hmm. who have only really experienced a market, particularly recently, that goes up. And then look at something like Bitcoin where it's like instant million, right? Like it, it feels like a lotto ticket. How do you think about investors, particularly young investors, managing risk? And like you said, you don't like the word failure, but a lot of these companies are going to fail. They are. Yeah. And there's there's a possibility that backstage doesn't do well at all. And everything that I have um, guessed and envisioned, it doesn't come true. And that's why I say like all venture investing, and we say it on the campaign, we say it every time I talk about it, it's so risky. All of it can go to zero. Every company mm-hmm. in the portfolio, again, knock wood, could go to zero. But we have diversified our portfolio so much that we have mitigated against that risk, in, in my opinion. And like I said, it's my job every day to get up every morning and see how do I make money for our stakeholders, including myself. And so we're highly incentivized to... Whereas we've invested in 160 companies, we've also seen, seen about 8,000 or so of those companies. So we invest in about 2% of what we see. So we're very, very structured and um, disciplined when it comes to the investments that we make. So I say to everybody, not just the younger generation that's getting into it, I say, everybody, look at this with a grain of salt, take it with a grain of salt, only put in an amount that you are comfortable losing outright. And this is something that you think about that's illiquid. And that you hold for a while and you just watch it, you know, ebb and flow. And for me, I, you know, when I look back at when I'm 40 now and I look back at 50, what I want to look back on is an empire of, of companies that have exited and a portfolio that is very impressive and, and a lot of and thousands of stakeholders now. And I'm able to say thousands now because that's what we've opened this up to. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't bet the farm on it. You wouldn't bet everything on any one thing, including Bitcoin or, or otherwise. And this is not, just to be clear, this is not like Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin has, uh, it also has constraints because it only has, what, the 21 million Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. It also is, it's probably going to be, it has its moments where it's very scary. <laughs> like I've, seen people, <laughs> I've seen people really get close to the, to the edge, you know, on some days with it. And ours is more like you put in, you know, if you can afford it, you put in $200 and now you are part of history. Now you are part of these 160, which will become 200, which will become 300 and more investments that are changing the world themselves. When you're a public market investor, obviously there's an SEC, you know, there's regulations, there's standardized reporting from companies, right? You buy a share of Apple, you get to go to the Apple shareholder call, you get a bunch of 8Ks and 10 key, like... There's just a bunch of paperwork that is regulated by the government that says, here's how this company you're invested in is doing, and they are required to be transparent with you. That's right. If somebody invests with you, uh, gives you $100, do your portfolio companies have a transparency requirement? Yeah, so the portfolio companies do not. So this is an investment in an umbrella LLC that okay. takes our carry. And we provide dividends. So we do, though. So we are, this is a reg CF, and that is highly mm-hmm. regulated. And a lot of the, there's been some changes to, to that recently with the SEC. So it's, it's the amount that we can raise is higher, things like that. We're going through Republic and not just using them as a platform. And we kind of, you know, said, signed up on a page and said, hey, can we do it here? We have partnered with them behind the scenes, their CEO and, and I, and then our teams have worked together. And Republic and Kendrick from Republic are listed at least 20 times in the latest SEC updates to Reg C and more, they have been to DC multiple times and helped actually with the regulations, help form what the regulations are. And so they are so highly scrutinized by the SEC and by by any financial kind of governance. And we we too will be. And so we'll be transparent. In order to even have the, you know, put the campaign up, we had to do all sorts of auditing and everything that is made visible. And then we will do reporting. Now, because it's a reg CF, there's also the flip side that there is when you sign in because you're putting in a hundred or you're putting in a thousand or even more, you are also signing paperwork that says 
that it's at our discretion what we share because it's a reg CF, it's a reg crowdfunding campaign. So we are just choosing to be as transparent as possible. And also we are governed and are, you know, on the up and up in that way. So it's like I said, it's something that I have my mom and my and my younger brother looking at and I will be buying more into it because I want, you know, <laughs> like uh, it's just the way I feel about it. But at the same time, I will say every single time I get a chance, it's risky. I want people to really read the paperwork, know what you're investing. And I say this to our private investors who are rich. It's not just that because you're not rich, you don't know this. I say it to everybody. Please read for yourself. Even if you have counsel, read it yourself so that you know the conversation to have with your counsel. And at the end of the day, if it's a lot of confusing jargon and it doesn't make a lot of sense, look at it like, okay, what would I, what would I spend on, you know, a night out or what would I spend on a pair of shoes? And I'll put that in and just kind of watch it. Right. I want to take a quick break and then I want to come back and talk about the actual business of being a VC. So let's take a break. We'll come right back. This is advertiser content. Last year, Ingenuity powered our resolve. It pushed us to pivot, adapt, evolve. Make that double for the restaurant industry. This is Shift Happens, brought to you by Intuit QuickBooks. QuickBooks' suite of business tools allowed husband and wife restaurateurs Chris Blydorn and Artie Shetty to make a critical change to Birdsong's business model when it mattered most. The San Francisco-based fine dining restaurant that took pride in the smallest details from where we put this little utensil rest to, you know, what we do when the guest gets up from their chair is now known for the best fried chicken sandwich I've ever eaten. The takeout chicken sandwich with the claw still attached garnered a lot of attention, like a column from the San Francisco Chronicle's food critic saying she shook hands with her sandwich. Birdsong, like so many businesses nationwide, forged an unexpected path for success and found a new identity for itself. This has literally forced us to a 180, just turn all the way around. Of course, our financial reporting and all that change. QuickBooks is an extremely intuitive system and it's easy to create new processes on the back end. A strong foundation makes innovation easier for any type of business. Intuit QuickBooks has the tools you need to run your business in one place. Learn how QuickBooks can help your small business be more successful by visiting quickbooks.com. We're back with Arlen Hamilton from Backstage Capital. So I just want to ask you about your job. You said you saw X thousand number of companies. You've done 160 deals. How do you make a deal? What happens? You're like, okay, I like you. Do you just... (laughs) you make it rain? I like, like what, what, what happens? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about your boyfriend. <laughs> no, so uh, it happens a few different ways. Um, you know, in 2020, even through COVID and and, and all the uprising and, and, and unrest, we were still able to make more than 20 investments remotely. Usually what happens is like we've always since day one had an open application process. You will never have to pay to apply. You'll never have to get a warm introduction, quote unquote, which so many funds make you do. But if you ever are told you have to pay to apply to Backstage, somebody's lying to you, right? Mm -hmm. So you go to our website, backstagecapital.com. There's an application process and we get thousands of applications and we go through them like once a quarter and we'll go through and we'll contact anyone that we're interested in learning more about. And then a lot of times we will have people introduce us to other companies. And a lot of times the best the best introductions are from people we've already invested in rather than like our investors. So usually somebody we've invested in, we've known them for two or three years. They say, I know this founder that's really starting something cool. Can you check it out? We'll check it out. So I will check it out or one of our partners, Christy Pitts or Brittany Davis, will check it out or Chacha Valadez, who's a principal, will check it out. And then sometimes it'll be, you know, two weeks and we, uh, we know that we want to invest. And sometimes it'll be six months. Sometimes you won't hear from us at all because it either doesn't work for us right now or we're you know backed up or whatever. But usually if it's in the process, we'll get we'll get on a couple of calls, Zooms. If if it's you know later, we'll 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 meet with the people when we can uh, out of these COVID streets. 
Um, <laughs> and, and, and we'll look at their deck, their presentation deck. So you can you can go online and, and look up what a what a slide deck looks like and kind of what that kind of entails. And that'll tell us a lot, hopefully tell us a lot about the company. We'll check out the company itself. If we're interested or intrigued, we might do some back channel investigation. We may join the, the company ourselves like as customers. We'll, we'll do a few things. We'll kind of kick the tires. And then for me, if it's something that I'm just very excited about, uh, usually it'll take me one good phone call, one good Zoom call, one good one in-person meeting to make a decision. There's absolutely some diligence that follows that, much like a Mark Cuban on the Shark Tank. You know, when they make a, a <laughs> decision, there's still like two months of diligence after that. And most people don't realize that. So there's this diligence of when you told us that you had 5,000 customers, you know, and 1,000 of them are paying customers. Was that true? That's the sort of diligence that we do. We go into your books and we go into, you know, we get some technical diligence done for us if it's a highly technical company or if it's something that's proprietary. And we'll do that. And then, you know, sometimes we're up against the deadline with their round, but most of the times we don't really care about deadlines. We're not going to be rushed, you know, because some people think- You're the money. Somebody, That's yes. the luxury of being the money. Well, somebody, well, it's not that so much, but it's like, I think someone or maybe a group of people got together and said, one of the things we're going to teach founders is that the way that they get the yes is to make it, make FOMO a thing. And maybe that works with other investors, but with us, we're like, it takes us so much to raise capital. It's like a real, this is our heart and souls in this. And so we're not going to mm -hmm. be just like chasing down the next flashy thing. We're like really thoughtful about where does this capital go? Because it's, it's essentially ours. And, and I can speak personally and say that, you know, a lot of the capital is my, is my personal capital. So I spent a lot of time just very um, engaged in, 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 in what we're investing in. So your sort of artificial deadline of you better get in because we're closing in two weeks. It's just like, okay, well, you should have contacted us two months ago then. <laughs> you, know, <it's> like, <laughs> you shouldn't have done that then. But usually, you know, if that's a real deadline, if it's really, you know, we're the last ones in, for instance, or uh, which is rare, but let's just say they just want us on the cap table. They want us as an investor, but they're making room for us rather than asking us to kind of start things off. Then we'll, we'll, we'll say, okay, yeah, let's not hold you up. Uh, but mostly it's usually we have a good amount of time and everybody, all, all the partners at Backstage can make autonomous investing decisions. And uh, we just have a lot of fun like in groups, though. We, we talk about the companies in groups, even though we don't technically have to. So you decide after whatever period of time and whatever process, OK, we want to give this company money. Is it just one form? Do you wire a check? What's the mechanics of it? Yeah, usually... Well, there's, it's not either or, but these are the top two ways. Uh, usually they're, they either already have terms figured out because some other investor who is putting in either more money or earlier money has decided, determined, okay, it's going to be that um, the, the company wants to raise a million dollars. What that fund is willing to say is we'll do it on a $5 million cap, which means it's a, like a, a promissory note, which basically is a loan that says this will convert to equity at some point in the future. And the cap is just kind of like a, a placeholder valuation. And they say, you know, this is what we're willing to put 500,000 towards and anybody else who wants to follow us can, can do it on the same terms. We agree to that um, and say, yes, we under, we believe that 5 million sounds right to us. We'll put in 100,000 on that. We will get those forms to fill out ourselves and to sign and then we'll be given wire information and we'll tell them when we're going to wire dependent on our capital calls and, and our cash flow. That's one way. Another way is they don't have those terms already predetermined because there is no lead, quote unquote, or they haven't themselves decided what, what the terms will be. So we will help them um, form terms either officially as a lead or non-officially or unofficially as just someone who wants to be helpful. And we'll say, we think this is what, what's best valuation for you or best cap for you. And we know for sure we want to put in this amount. And then we will provide documents for them. And then they can use those documents in the future for, to close out the round. And so those documents are a few pages long because usually at this early stage, you're talking about convertible notes, which is what I just described. And those are not as a heavy lift for legal teams as a, a, value, a valued round where there's equity being exchanged. 
this is more a, you're, you're kind of engaged, you know, you're like, <laughs> I'll give you this loan. If you do well, it turns into equity later. If you don't, then you owe, owe me the money back in two or three years or whatever. And so that's usually what happens. And so we'll receive that to date. All of those kind of come to me at the very end to kind of sign off on everything. But again, like I said, anybody at the team today can can make autonomous decisions. And so if you're talking to anyone, you're you're talking to who you need to be talking to. And then we will wire and we we are part of their cap table, which is, you know, the capitalization table that we're they're on their list of uh, investors. And we have some sort of uh, stake in the company. Once you are investing in a company, what does your relationship with that company look like? Are you in, are you in their shit every day? Are you <laughs> asking questions? Like, are you hands off? So it depends. It depends. Um, we have 160 companies to date. I would say probably 50 of those we talk to uh, at least once a month. And the rest we talk to in, 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 as a group. And so that depends on their preference. When you first get signed on as an investment uh, backstage, you're first of all, you're called a headliner to our backstage. Like you're not a portfolio company, you're a headliner. You can really see that music tour background yeah. coming through. Yeah, we have a lot of that going on. And so you are you get, one of the things you get, um, you get onboarded. So you get onto our website if you're if you're ready to be announced uh, or if you want to, you know, make an announcement yourself. You also get all kinds of like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of perks from us, uh, which a lot of funds do, which is uh, and accelerators do, which is like, you know, cloud credits and, and different website things that will save you a lot of money and time that we've already negotiated for you. So you get a package. And so you go to AWS and you buy that stuff wholesale and then you just get exactly. it. Exactly. And, and, and a lot okay. of times an AWS or a Google Cloud or a Digital Ocean, all three have worked with us. So I appreciate all three. A lot of times they'll say, you don't even have to spend money on it because we want to be the preferred cloud server for your portfolio company. So for your headliners, so we'll give the first hundred K worth will be on us and then they can make a decision because you, you're kind of giving them a marketplace of where they could decide which one served them better. And so it's very competitive. Actually, we get a lot of companies and contacting us all the time through backstagecapital.com or just emailing and they're just like, what can we do for your portfolio? Because you have very diverse portfolio, obviously. And also some of these are going to be the future tech titans of, of the world. And so we want to be in. Um, so that's great for our founders. It's really awesome. It doesn't, you know, it, it, it adds to the value that we're able to give. But I think then on top of that, we then say we have an open door policy where most of the founders have my phone number. They can text me anytime. But you can really, you know, we have a Slack group where they help each other out. We have quarterly calls, if not more than that, to just kind of hang out. And and uh, we've had a really cool kind of group, um, I guess, an inner circle or a mastermind type thing with Brad Feld with a few of our founders recently. Just things that we curate that we know will be helpful to certain companies we also help companies raise more funding, which is a big, big, big part of what our, our job is and what we think we're quite good at. And then there are going to be companies that I haven't spoken to since we made the investment. And that's because we're either the smallest check and they don't really need our help or they are just doing their thing and they know they can call on us when you know things are really topsy-turvy. They know they can reach out to us. But we respect that those boundaries and we, we like the fact that that's kind of, you, you know that when you're going into an investment with us, that we're, we're available to you and we're also hands off if you don't need us there. So things like cloud service credits, guidance and Slack channels, networking amongst your, your portfolio companies, that's like the standard set of help. And there's kind of the standard set of challenges that every company has, mm -hmm. but your portfolio companies are also represent or also a group of underrepresented people in the industry. Do you think about your guidance different? Like you've got the standard set of I'm running a startup problems and then you've got an entire other layer of problems of this industry. Te the tech industry is not great at helping underrepresented people succeed. And so we've got to navigate through that as well. Do you think of that as all intertwined or is that, oh, man, we oh, just got to yeah. do more work? Oh, yeah. And I, it, it kind of comes out. It's not so much something that we really plan for, but it really comes out. For instance, we recently before, you know, during the holidays, we held a couple of gatherings on Zoom for our portfolio companies to, to mix and mingle with our investors and to just kind of catch up with everybody and 
we've had employees go on to other things. We had brought them back to kind of hang. And one of our headliner founders just kind of piped in at the, towards the end. And he said, you know, you are the only fund in our entire cap table who did this this year. Everyone else did this for their investors or for their, you know, internal teams, but they didn't do it for the portfolio and the investors to kind of know each other. And we had no idea. I personally didn't have any idea that we were doing anything special in that. But it's just we think through things from a different perspective. And I think in turn, that naturally manifests itself in a way that is relatable and and, and helpful. Of course, we think about it all the time, though. I think about it all the time. The difference is I'm but I'm not trying to like compare myself or our fund and have like a scorecard, except for the diversity thing. I will say that out loud a lot, <laughs> but I, I'm not trying to say, well, we did this and, because there's some, there's some funds. I mean, we have the assets under management we have today are just limited. And there are some funds who, you know, you go to them, they put a $2 million behind your company and, and they can help you with your first five major executive hires with one, you know, email. There's some funds who can make sure that, you know, you have your first thousand customers if you're a consumer. What we do really well is not necessarily having that much leverage and power. We help where we can in those regards. But what we do really well is, I think this is what we do, is we help syndicate rounds of funding for founders who otherwise wouldn't have the access. And so I just share a lot of my augmented privilege that I've pulled together over the past five years. And and Christy might pull in an enterprise customer for a B2B company, and Brittany might make an introduction to an investor who's going to lead their next round. You know, we just try to be very curated and thoughtful and understanding. And one thing that you can't really measure but happens is that there have been multiple times where a company has had much larger investors on their cap table, and they call us first, even if we're not on the board, if there's something going wrong, if there's something going right, because there's a trust level that we are them and they are, they are we, right? So I think that's what's immeasurable. And the way that that's actually turning into something beyond it being a good feeling is that in 2020, there were three separate occasions where we had very, very favorable terms and allocation outsized to, to what you would imagine we would have and follow on funding for companies in our portfolio, where because we were with them through the trenches and through the lean times, three, four years, when they're in these positions where they can raise tens of millions of dollars or their revenue has just exploded. They want to call us first to get in on the good and to say, what do you want of this? What can you pull together of this? We have these three, four billion dollar funds in the wings who will take this, but we want you to win when we win. So how much of it do you want? That is where things where people from the outside are looking in and like, why, you know, what is backstage? They, they make these small investments. They have all these investments. And Arlen's always yelling on Twitter. What exactly is that? <laughs> what are they calling themselves? That's when the rubber hits the road. When yeah. you'll see us out of nowhere in a billion dollar deal, like in a unicorn deal, and we have allocation out of this world because you didn't see us coming. Because we were there night after night, day after day, on the phone, helping with the small things, helping with the seemingly small things that were huge to the founder or to the team at the time. And then when they're ready to just, you know, share the wealth, they're sharing it with us in a lot of cases first. Let's take another break. And when we come back, I want to talk about how the broader conversation about inequality in society is having an impact on tech and the VC world. Okay, we're back. So I, I started out this whole conversation by saying we are in the middle of what it feels like an endless reckoning in tech that's largely pointed to giants. It's also happening in VC. It's happening in, in startups. You have a role to play in it. That's what Backstage is designed to do is to make it more equitable. How do you see this reckoning playing out? Because it doesn't feel like it's getting better. It just it feels like it's getting louder. And maybe that's the first step to getting better. But it, I think about it all the time. I don't see the path forward unless things like radically get reshuffled. I think there's a percentage that I don't know the exact number that is actually it's cut. If you cut the fat of it, it's actually real. You know, maybe that's 20 percent, 30 percent of 
when the dust settles a year from now or two years from now and you look back at who sent out the the letters and the blacked out their uh, profiles and who said we're going to make it now we're going to look at our black employees and care when the dust settles there will only be 20 to 30 percent in my opinion who really have come through but that 20 to 30 percent would have been 20 to 30 percent almost more than before and I do think it's that combination of these certain certain titans of industry, certain Fortune 500 companies, certain bigger funds, not many, but some, that group and the crowd getting together and saying, we don't need that, the, the, the titans to, to tell us what's right here. And that's why I'm so excited about what we're doing with Republic and what we're doing with our race, because that was born out of last June, I was yelling everywhere I could. I was crying on my own podcast. I was just, you know, inconsolable for a long time about the fact that so many people were getting this kind of pass because they they put a headline out and said they're going to do better. And I'm like, what about the people in the trenches who this really needs to affect? And I thought about it for a little bit and I thought, you know what, instead of trying to convince five or six elderly white men who have always had privilege that we need to have X amount of capital what if I took this to the crowd? And so in June, we did take it to the crowd. We had within just a few weeks, we had 2,500 people sign up to be investors in certain deals of ours where it would have before we would have had to go to this bigger fund and ask for that capital. Now we can just put up a deal and, and offer it to individuals. And I think that's going to be the case here. Because you see, when Don Dixon, a Black woman founder, when she wasn't getting the respect she felt she deserved in venture, she didn't keep knocking on the door of venture and begging and saying, please see me. She went out and she went on The Breakfast Club and she went on Shade Room and she, she talked to her people. And she said, I want you all to have a piece of my company. And then she made history as the first Black person to raise the full amount, the 1070000 that was allowed at the time uh, for a Reg CF, the first Black person ever to do so. And then she did it again the next year. And then another person, she's a headliner of ours. And then another person, a headliner in our, on our group is uh, Pierre at Fleety. The same thing. He had, he had some support from Venture, but he didn't, he, he wasn't going to only count on them. So he went to the crowd. I think the crowd is going to tell us what's next. So I don't know what happens with the, the huge titans, the huge companies, tech companies and funds, but I'm no longer really interested in making sure that they're okay. Because I know that we can find our ways elsewhere. And I hope that they they jump on and they they come with us and they figure it out. But they're going to be competing against us pretty quickly if they don't do something within their own ranks and fast. Uh, so one more one more meaty question. You know, I, I talk to mostly executives and they all tell me there's a competition problem with the tech giants. We're seeing a lot of antitrust action around Facebook and Google right now. But the way that executives talk to me about the competition problem is what they call a, a kill zone for investment. You're going to start a company. You're going to build a feature or a product that people like. Amazon's going to see it. They're going to make a, a cheaper version. They're going to promote it on, on the store and your company's dead. That feels like a real danger when you're not in the network, in the old boys club of investors, where your guaranteed exit to Facebook or Google or Amazon is in the mix, where you are doing crowdfunded investment, where you are doing a different class, maybe a more democratic class of investors. Do you see that kill zone? Does that worry you the way that it worries some of the executives I talk to? She's no, it doesn't worry me at all. <laughs> because I, th I talk a lot about in my book, It's About Damn Time, I talk about repurposing emotion, repurposing, you know, preconceived ideas, all of that. Obviously, yeah, this is going to, this is going to affect some people and some companies. And it's, it's, you can say that about almost anything. But I just see too much. I'm ju I just have a front row seat, the best seat in the house to, to too much innovation from black and brown and women founders and LGBTQ founders to think anything else. But we got this. There's a lot of innovation coming out that is being built and it's been you know quiet because they didn't have the resources. And now they're, they're put, pulling together the resources. There's also the crowd itself wanting it to be so. And there's also the idea of repurposing what success is. If everybody in our portfolio thought that every single company, including us, if we thought this, that every single company had to be a $10 billion company to be considered successful, then yeah, maybe we'd be in trouble. But we don't think of it like that. We think of it as what is life changing to that founding, 
team and to their employees and to their customers and to their investors. What is impactful globally with this company and that company? What changes the game? What saves lives? The companies in our portfolio are changing lives and saving lives. And we don't have this homogenous view of like, you're only successful to us if you became a unicorn. We're talking about, you know, practically cash on cash returns. We want to make more money than we put in and we want to make money. But we don't feel like we're in the confines of of kind of a, it's just, it seems very boring to live in that, in that gray world where everybody's afraid of Amazon and Facebook and Uber. They're probably justifiably afraid because they are working within very specific constraints of their own vision. I'm talking to people who have vision beyond that because they've had different experiences in life. And so, you know, I still talk to to investors who say, oh, I think it's risky to invest in Africa because and they uh, they lose me at because when you think about how big Africa is <laughs> and how many more people there are to reach and India and, and all these places. And they're like, I think because and it's just like it doesn't make any sense. You're you're so isolated and so siloed that, yeah, of course, this big Goliath feels scary to you. Because you don't, you haven't had to run around the feet of Goliath your whole life. We have. Well, Arlen, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. It's a fun conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. It's pretty cool. Really cool. Thanks again to Arlen for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Sophie Erickson and edited by Sonia Herrero. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. With the arrival of a new year, it's not a bad time for a mental health check-in. Maybe you'd like to give therapy a try for the first time, or you're feeling ready to try it again. Whatever the case, BetterHelp is here for you with licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and help in areas like family and relationship conflict, depression, self-esteem, anxiety, and more. Whatever you're feeling, BetterHelp can help you navigate it. Talk to your counselor in a private online environment at your own convenience. BetterHelp counselors specialize in areas like family and relationship conflict, LGBTQ matters, self-esteem, and more. Whatever you're feeling, BetterHelp can help you navigate it. If you think professional help could ease whatever you're going through right now, check out BetterHelp. First, you'll fill out a questionnaire to assess your needs, and then they'll match you with a counselor in under 48 hours. You can exchange unlimited messages with your counselor in addition to your scheduled video and phone sessions, and everything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is an affordable option. Get started today at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Talk to a therapist online and get help today.